Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, everybody. This is Kai. In our show this past Sunday, we devoted the whole hour to thinking about the Supreme Court's affirmative action ruling. And in the first part of that show, we spoke with historian Ibram X. Kendi about the logic of the ruling and the history behind the idea of race-neutral or so-called colorblind public policy. That's the most recent episode in your feed. And what you're about to hear now is the second part of our affirmative action show in which we talk more about the future of equity in higher education. So here you go. Let's turn now to the question of what this ruling does or doesn't mean for equity in higher education moving forward. And listeners, I want to hear from you. If you're getting ready to apply for college or if you're helping someone with that process as a parent or guardian or school advisor, call us up. How do you think the ruling impacts your process? And joining me for this conversation is Dominique Baker, Associate Professor of Education Policy at Southern Methodist University. Her research focuses on equity in higher education. Dominique, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I am also joined again by the National Book Award-winning professor Amani Perry, who has just joined Harvard University as a professor of African and African-American studies and studies of women, gender, and sexuality. And Amani, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Dominique, can you start off um, with some basics here? You have studied affirmative action and a host of other policies for equity in higher ed. How should we be thinking about the ruling and its impact? You you said we should be careful not to overstate its power. What do you mean by that? So I think there are sort of two pieces we can think about with this ruling. The first is that there will be a real uh, decrease in the share of Black and brown and indigenous students who are enrolling at a set of institutions across the country, uh, thinking about the uh, institutions in this case, right, Harvard, UNC, all those sorts of things, Um, but that those institutions are fairly small number of the institutions across the country, and they enroll a, a very small portion of the college students in the United States. So one of the things that I actually think about when I think about the broader impact of this ruling is actually thinking about the chilling effect that this will have on other colleges and universities across the country. Mm. What do you mean by that? Yeah, it's that we frequently see, we saw this in 2003 after the Michigan Supreme Court cases, that institutions often go above and beyond what the letter of the law requires of them. So even though this, uh, the opinion may say this is only about admissions and there are still ways that you can consider and think about how individuals have experienced their race, what we can see, we saw this in 2003, we're already starting to see it now, is you'll see people say things like, well, we can't consider race when it comes to scholarships. We can't consider race when it comes to hiring. 
And those are not actually detailed in the opinion, but because institutions mm. get really scared about litigation and things of that nature, they can go above and beyond what the law requires of them and wind up curtailing race conscious practices far beyond the scope of what SCOTUS actually told them they had to do. Mm-hmm. I want to get into more of that a little bit more, but Amani, to bring you into the conversation. Mm-hmm. After the ruling dropped, um, you tweeted a question that I think is also uh, a useful Mm -hmm. baseline for our conversation. You asked, what is the function of American higher education? Is it merely a zone of capitalistic competition, or -hmm. do we hope that it serves to create a competent and decent body of professionals to serve their societies and their communities? Why is that the question that was on your mind right after the ruling? Well, it was really this sort of simultaneous, I think what Dominique said is absolutely true. There's these sort of two dynamics at work here. So one is the question of race-based affirmative action being narrowly tailored to such an extent that it may not actually be able to to function any longer. And then the other is this this case around um, a student uh, loan forgiveness. And simultaneously, what the pressures are then become for the hun- roughly 120 schools that are selective in some in some form or another, that it will be dramatically more difficult for students of color, particularly black and indigenous students, to be admitted. And at the same time, we have a public sector which is failing students because of having this unbelievable debt that, it, that the Supreme Court also um, struck down the capacity to alleviate that. Now, there's some ways around that potentially. So the question came to my mind because you're essentially saying, well, these wealthy institutions that actually have the resources to fund students, those can no longer serve um, these these groups. And these students that are in the pub that are public institutions that have a responsibility to serve all of the nation's young people, those are also becoming cost prohibitive. And so for me, the question of what is the function of education comes to the fore. And I just have to say, I think it's really important to keep in mind that systematically Black people have been taxed for, for, pub, for public education, including at the higher education level, all through history. It only begins to open up in the late 60s. Within 10 years, you have the Bakke decision, right? So I, the way I put it is I and my family and the only generation that was able to benefit from affirmative action and have access to public education fully. And now the question, you know, competitive public higher education. And now for my children, It's being suggested that there is too much remedy that has been offered. Mm -hmm. One generation um, for multiple in response to multiple generations of systematic exclusion and also systematic processes of limiting the capacity for black people to accumulate the kind of wealth that might have made other ways of getting access possible. Mm. I I hadn't. Well, there's so much in there to to unpack, but I hadn't Mm -hmm. thought about. I, I'm ashamed to say the two rulings together, um, mm. uh, the student loan ruling and the affirmative action ruling together in the way that you've just outlined it, that is that that is important food for thought. I actually want to broaden uh, our call out with that in mind. Mm. I'm interested in in both of those rulings and how they affect you. If, if you are getting ready to apply for college or if you're helping someone in that process or a parent, a guardian, a school advisor, whoever you are, Thinking about both the affirmative action ruling and the ruling that limited the student loan forgiveness, how's that showing up in your process? Has it shown up in any way, shape, or form? Do you want to, Dominique, give us a quick reaction also to the student uh, loan forgiveness ruling? This is also right in your wheelhouse. What's your top-line response when you saw that ruling? Yeah, uh, it wasn't great. 
that was my top line response. <laughs> was, uh, yeah, so I uh, both study race conscious admissions uh, and I study uh, student loans and debt cancellation. And so it's sort of a one-two punch. I, I completely agree with everything that Amani is saying that these uh, these pieces work together. These decisions work together. I think that you have to read and think about the opinions uh, for each case together. Um, and think about what it means for our future. What, did, what does it mean when we think about the fact that we've sort of created a pathway to uh, stability and prosperity in our country that runs through higher education, but we've also created sort of way that the only way that most people can gain access now is through taking on a massive amount of student loan debt, that where we ignore all of these sort of larger systems that we've put into place previously for centuries uh, that make it so that certain students are unable to attend the institutions that have the most money to provide for scholarships, for institutional grants. So they wind up taking out more debt and wind up more likely to default afterwards. Mm -hmm. So to, to me, they, they work uh, perfectly hand in glove with one another to create a world where uh, we sort of say that there's one pathway to prosperity and we are only going to open that up uh, for certain students. We're going to take a break. I'm talking with Amani Perry, Harvard University professor of African and African-American studies and the studies for gender, for the studies of women, gender, and sexuality. I'm also joined by Dominique Baker, whose research on education policy at Southern Methodist University has focused specifically on equity in higher ed. And after the break, we will also begin to take your calls if you are getting ready to apply for college or if you're helping someone in that process. How has the Supreme Court's rulings on either affirmative action or on student loan relief affected your process or your thinking? Stay with us. Hi, my name's Regina and I'm a producer with the show. You may remember that last year, we started the Notes from America Summer Playlist. We collected submissions from you and curated a playlist that everyone could enjoy. Well, summer is here again, and I'm happy to announce we're launching our second summer playlist. A couple weeks ago, I had a conversation with the guys from a band called Wake Island. They talked about how music has become such a powerful outlet for identity filling a need as they search for their place in the Arab-American diaspora. So now it's your turn. What's a song that represents your personal diaspora story? Here's how to send us your response. Go to notesfromamerica.org and look for the record button to leave us a message. Start with your name and where you're recording from. Then tell us the name of that song, the artist, and a short story that goes along with it. Feel free to include a little bit about your background as well. Make it your own. And please make sure that your recording is at least a minute long. We'll gather all the songs and your stories in Spotify playlists that will drop regularly all summer long. All right, I think that's everything. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. And I can't wait to hear from you. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier. 
to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and we are talking about the end of race-based affirmative action and the Supreme Court's ruling on student loan relief. What's the Supreme Court's ruling really mean, and who does it really impact? We can take your calls. If you're getting ready to apply for college or if you're helping someone with that process, how do these rulings affect your process? I'm joined by Imani Perry, uh, newly of Harvard University, and Dominique Baker of Southern Methodist University. And let's go right to Harmon in Fargo, North Dakota. Harmon, welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, thank you. So how, is, how have either of these rulings affected you? Um, well, first of all, I, I was going to call on about the affirmative action uh, ruling, but I, I believe the student loan debt one is also extremely important. Um, I'm a recent college graduate. I personally do not have a significant amount of student loan debt. Uh, the person in my family who does is my mother. And statistically, a lot of student loan debt is actually held by Gen Xers. And I believe that can also affect the next generation of college students. But beyond that, as far as affirmative action is concerned, um, even back in my high school days, I remember, I mean, as a white man, a lot of uh, comments from other white students about, like, very nonchalant about applying to college, about the notion of, like, oh, other people are more likely to get in than me, so why would I bother, of course, being on the race issue? Um, which, it always confused me because it seemed extremely defeatist. And um, I hear those same sentiments were echoed when I was helping my little brother apply to Texas A&M University, um, which is a university, I believe, uh, particularly has a very interesting history with uh, racism and barring black students. I definitely agree with the comment earlier about the path to prosperity mm-hmm. being gridlocked out, because I feel like, to a certain extent, whenever white students don't make it into universities, it provides a very convenient scapegoat to be able to just say, oh, probably a black student got an affirmative action, so I shouldn't have even bothered trying. And of course, as you were saying earlier, and uh, Ibram Kendi was saying earlier, you have all these uh, relatives of alumni, relatives of donors that are getting past that post first. Um, I think it definitely, like that racialized blame system, gets ingrained very early into people's minds during the college admission process mm-hmm. as a way of essentially blaming a third party that had nothing to do with it. Gets ingrained in people's minds early in the process. Uh, Dominique or Amani, do you want to talk about that? The way these ideas get ingrained in people's minds in the process of applying for college? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's, and it's a very deliberate political strategy. So there's abundant research that demonstrates that the impact of race based affirmative action. I think at most highly selective institutions is on the order of 1%, right? So that there's a, a relatively infinitesimal impact of a race-based affirmative action on the likelihood of a white student being admitted. But of course, all of those other factors mentioned earlier have a much greater impact. And then I think the larger question, though, is even what that idea means sort of easier to get in, right? Right. So once you, you know, you're not controlling for all of the other forces that shape how the student looks when they come to the uh, application process, right? All the other forces of inequality that operate on every level, even at the level of the classroom, right? We have abundant evidence that in-classroom racial discrimination impacts grades. So there's both district-wide discrimination, there's within-school discrimination, and there's even in-class discrimination. So the idea that there's some kind of unfairness is really, not only is it untrue, but the narrative is consistent with this long history of sort of 
blaming black people for for any form of adversity, which is really about a possessive investment in whiteness, right? And the advantages of whiteness, not just the sort of abstract notion of fairness. Dominique, you want to chime in? I was just going to throw in, I think this is actually a perfect example because you mentioned that you helped your brother with an application to Texas A&M and that this was ingrained. But in the 90s, Texas actually, through a court order, stopped considering race and admissions um, because it was through a court order when the 2003 Michigan cases happened, it actually sort of invalidated that. And so uh, institutions in Texas got to choose whether or not they wanted to consider race and admissions. And Texas A&M decided not to. Mm. So it's funny, right, that that's a piece that's uh, talked about when it comes to your brother's application, because Texas A&M is not an institution yeah, yeah. that considers race in their admissions process. That really is. There it is. But let me ask you this, Dominique. This is a, a, a comment from from YouTube. And I think this is the question that a lot of people come to with affirmative action. Someone asks um, if there should be more of a socioeconomic distinction between students from different ethnic backgrounds, mm. and if more of the focus mm-hmm. should be on the descendants of persons who were enslaved and indigenous tribes. For people who are, you know, that's a very common reaction to this. How, what is your reaction to that question? Yeah. So I think, I, I think sort of twofold. One, I always think it's important to keep in mind that when we say systemic racism, we mean systemic racism, right? So we mean that there are things that happen to people that we have structured systems in our society to benefit white supremacy. And that is true regardless of how much money the people who are not white have. And so that's important when thinking about the way that racism works in our country. Having said that, um, it's really interesting because I often hear people say, well, instead of thinking about race-conscious admissions, what we should do is really focus on socioeconomic status. We should really only focus on this income piece. And the part that's challenging there is all the studies that look at simulations of socioeconomic status and, and looking at sort of class-conscious admissions, they show a, a significant decrease in the racial diversity of incoming classes. Because exactly as um, Ibram was saying earlier, uh, what happens is you admit more white low-income students mm. uh, in particular. And so it is not the case that you can just automatically substitute out class for race um, and and think that you're necessarily getting the, the same outcomes. You have to name the race mm-hmm. in it. Uh, let's go to Linda in Portland, Oregon. Linda, welcome to the show. Hi. You want to want to share with us how either of these rulings have affected your your journeys through school? Well, I want to give people hope and encourage them to consider working and uh, in, in getting either their, their first two years education through community college, which is how I got through school and got a t- two degrees, and or uh, working full-time in a job and just doing it in night studies uh, for a number of years. And I just discovered in old papers that uh, my partner and I had stored from the family. Her aunt had put herself through library science uh, d- a degree uh, out here in Portland by going to night school. And here were all these wonderful, um, you know, credits by credits that she had accumulated because she came from a, a family that was an immigrant family that didn't have money to just, you know, go to college all at once. So she did it little by little and had no student debt. And the same with me. I didn't have money to apply for college uh, and and go through university. So I, I went through community college first and then was able to get uh, jobs that 
paid really quite well for for my needs. And uh, if I wanted to go back and get a, a you know a master's or a doctorate, I I now could. But uh, can I, ask I you, is is it okay to ask you when this occurred? When 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 at what time period were these? When when both your aunt and you were yes, able to do that? Yes, of course it's that? okay. I think we need we need to quit worrying about quote offending people. We need to be able to talk with people and have different points of view. So uh, I uh, went to school in the sixties. My my partner's aunt would have gone to uh, work in it would have been uh, post World War Two okay. when women didn't have any jobs to speak of. So it was really hard to get money together. And I, I would mention this too. Uh, when when I was younger, my uh, my partner and I were at a hardware store, and there was, since this is primarily a show uh, directed towards young black people, but um, our, the guy that waited on us at the hardware store wanted to be a cartoonist, and, he, well, he happened to be black, I don't think in those terms, but my partner said, well, you've got to go back to school and get a degree in art, so he did a part-time thing through the University of Washington and got his degree in fine arts in uh, from the from the four-year college, and then he was I'm, able to uh, become a I'm going to stop you there, so. Linda, and I thank you for that call, and just to clarify, this show for everybody, not uh, just young black people, but well, I really hope there's a lot of young black people listening. Um, Amani, you're trying to jump in. Yes. Yeah, I think this is really important. It's the historical context. I'm so glad you asked mm-hmm. Kai about the time period, because, so in the 1960s, so my family is the vast majority of African-Americans in this country was in the South. No one in my family could go to a state university, um, a majority white state university. was They were legally prohibited. And those, when they desegregated, there was a violent retaliation, right? So even in that time period, that option was not available in the same way. It also, the job landscape was not comparable, Black women in Alabama, where my family was, were either were hired as domestics, they worked in agricultural labor, and maybe sometimes they worked in higher in education, but in black segregated schools, right? And a small number um, had other kinds of professions, but those were very narrow access points, right? What we see today is that public education. So I think I agree, community college is a wonderful vehicle to four-year education, but public education, public higher education is being underfunded. So the consequence of not having a robust public higher education system, many community colleges that don't have direct pathways to four-year institutions, combined with labor market discrimination of the sort that, you know, uh, economists estimate Whiteness is worth like three or four more years of education, literally, in terms of job markets. There's studies that suggest that Black people with with a high school diploma are less likely to be called back for a job than white people with criminal records who dropped out of high school, right? Which is not to suggest that the pathway that, that, that Linda set forth isn't a meaningful one, but that actually does not address the problem of inequality. The other reason I asked about the time period, Dominique, is I wonder, is that in today's time period, possible for anybody in terms of the costs and the kinds of um, the the cost of education, uh, even public education. What what is different, if anything, um, in the landscape today from the time that Linda has described? 
So that's exactly what I was thinking as well, is that the price to attend college uh, has risen astronomically. And one of the uh, issues that actually Amani was just touching on is that when public underfunding begins to happen, uh, sort of accelerates, and so the state is not providing as much money to public institutions, those institutions actually raise their tuition prices. We have very good economics research that shows this. So what that means is community college does not cost the same in 2023 that that it cost um, in the 60s, in part because we, we have underfunded our public institutions. And so that means that it, it is more expensive to go to college in present day, which makes it really challenging for people to sort of take the path that Linda did. But it's also the case that because there's less funding at community colleges, it means sometimes right classes are oversubscribed. There's too many people oh. signed up. They don't have enough money to hire people to teach. And so students, when they're trying to think about night school and things of that nature, mm-hmm. instead of going to the public community college, they go to for-profit institutions. And we have very robust research on for-profit institutions, um, particularly from uh, Tracy McMillan Cottom, that mm-hmm. show the way that those students um, are charged an exceeding, just an exceptional amount of money um, and are uh, not as likely to complete a credential. So then they wind up taking out a significant amount of debt, but they don't get the boost from getting a credential so that they might get a job that has better earnings. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it is a much more difficult road to travel in 2023 to find an affordable college education by sort of doing a mixture of night courses and community mm-hmm. college courses. And Dominique, so the facts are, as I understand them, help me if this is right, the vast, vast, vast majority of students that go to college do not go to any of the selective schools that are involved in the affirmative action debate. So that's of any race. (laughs) Um, and, um, and, And so I guess my question is, does this, when we think about the affirmative action ruling and the amount of uh, political energy that's that's attached to it and the feelings that we all have attached to it, does it matter um, for the vast majority of students? Um, there's these financial things that we're talking about, but on the on the affirmative action question, how how does it mm-hmm. how does it matter to the vast majority who do not go to these select who will never go to these selective schools? So I think that's that's spot on. You know, one of the things I always tell people is when we're thinking about this set of institutions that have really small acceptance rates, that on average they're entering classes of about fifteen hundred students. So they are not educating a like, large portion of people who uh-huh. are going to colleges and universities, right? But I'll come back to the point I was talking about a little bit earlier. These ripple effects, these chilling effects that these cases can have matter a lot. It took less than two days for state attorneys general uh, to begin asking questions to public university systems about whether or not they should be using race uh, when they are considering for financial aid, when they are looking at employment. And, and that is even though the opinion literally says this is only related to admissions decisions. And so it is a very real concern, I think, when we look at sort of the fabric across the country, uh, we can see cases like this adding to like Florida's Stop Woke Act, adding to the DEI ban in Texas, that they all start to work together to try to, quite frankly, uphold uh, the power uh, and, and sort of supremacy of white students within colleges and universities. So even though we are talking about a select group of institutions that admit a small number of students, that doesn't 
diminish the attacks that are happening on the tools to try to advocate for racial justice in this country. And Amani, in you know the minute or so we've got left, you are in uh, one of the most elite institutions in the country, if not the world. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Why should a similar version of this question? Why should a racial justice question such as access to university ed- education? Why should access to elite universities be part of that conversation in the first place? Right. Well, I mean, I think the reality is that we have a profoundly unequal society and access to elite universities has consequences for who becomes those who become the people who are actually in positions of power and authority. And if people of color, significant numbers of black and indigenous people are not in that group, it does have significant impact on the rest of the society. Now, were I to create the perfect world, I believe that we should invest in all institutions. I believe that every university can be made an excellent university and it doesn't require a high degree of selectivity, but that's not the world that we live in. And so it's the idea, these elite universities say that their their vision is to educate the world, to impact the world, and they have a responsibility to respond to the world as it is and to include everyone. Amani Perry is Harvard University professor of African and African-American studies and for the study of women, gender, and sexuality. Dominique Baker is associate professor of education policy at Southern Methodist University. Thanks to you both for this time. Thank you. Thank you. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. A special thanks this week to Mike Kutchman for mixing the podcast and Sean Merchant for helping produce this segment. Theme music by Jared Paul. Matthew Mirando is our live engineer. Our team also includes Billy Estreen, Karen Frillman, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navidar, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I am Kai Wright. Talk to you next week. <laughs>